I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. How did you get to be teaching and writing about yoga all around the globe? How did you well, find yoga? How did it find you? <laughs> yeah. It was not a direct path, but it's a very specific story. So I had found yoga when I was really little and thought, oh, this is fun. You know, I like this and then forgot about it and did sports. And in high school, um, I became very involved in practicing yoga and actually helped by my senior year, helped teach it one day a week. But, you know, it was a different kind of yoga then. It was like, oh, inhale, exhale, fold over your legs. Okay, everybody, now stand up on your heads. And, like, you know, it was not like this sort of in-depth sort of analytical what's your, you know, who's your teacher thing that it, that it is now. I mean, or at least it probably was somewhere, but not in my high school class. So I really loved it. In college in Middlebury, I went and I danced very seriously and, and it was the only, and I loved it. It was kind of took the place of yoga for four years and then came to go to graduate school in New York City. And now we're talking about the nineties and for at the school of visual arts. And I was, I had never had a doubt in my entire life that I was an artist. This is what I was doing with my life. I mean, since the time I was little, I was an artist and I also loved to write. And I was like, I'm an artist. I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a writer. And those are my two things always. And never any intention of becoming a yoga teacher. Um, but in New York, I was very much in the art world. I was exhibiting at pretty major galleries and, um, and my work's in a lot of good collections and museum collections like the UCLA Hammer Museum and these places. And, um, but I was so stressed out, it was out of control and it was really cutthroat and really, um, you know, I realized at a certain point, like I'm not happy, I'm not having fun. Not that, you know, it's always about having fun, but I wasn't happy and I was so stressed out. I finally found yoga again, going to the gym, going to like crunch gym and couldn't close my eyes in Shavasana. And I will never forget, like, I will never forget that sensation of being so stressed out that I couldn't close my eyes in Shavasana. And now I can't even conceive that uh, of being that person, but I was. And what, um, what do you think it was? Was it just stress? I mean, what was going on in your mind oh, when yeah. you were lying there that you couldn't let your oh, eyes close? It, it was the art world. It was intense stress. And on top of it, I was working at MoMA. I was lecturing at MoMA and, you know, doing lots of little writing things at MoMA. And eventually that culminated in my co-writing a book on Matisse and Picasso and the Matisse Picasso show in 2003, 2004. Um, 
I was doing these amazing programs, outreach in the schools, working with, um, you know, school kids, you know, all the way up through high school in every conceivable neighborhood. And it was very meaningful to me. It was a great way for an artist of um, supporting myself because it was interesting. And MoMA was, I mean, beautiful being able to work at MoMA and walk in the galleries when they were close. And that was heavenly. And I was there for many years. I actually stopped being a freelance lecturer there a few years ago. But I was on staff there also for nine years and um, part time. So I was trying to deal with the intensity of like being at MoMA and like it's super intense all the time. And you're paid very little and you're expected to work a lot. And then being in the art world where I'm going to gallery openings every single night and, you know, when there's everyone's kind of sizing you up and figuring out like what they can get from you. (laughs) It's really intense. It's like, you know, New York, whether it's Wall Street or the art world, it's kind of all the same. So there was that. And I really I, I got to a point where I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And I had done a couple of great artist residencies and stuff gotten out of the city, and, but I, I lost my joy in art making. Mm-hmm. And right about the same time, 9-11 happened. And right before 9-11, I had spent my first weekend ever doing sort of a retreat. And it was out in the Hamptons. And it was like, wow, this is incredible. And Christian Das was there. And I was like, it was. I didn't know what this was. I didn't know what they were saying. I didn't know what they were chanting. All I knew is that I was vibrating, like every inch of me was vibrating, like mm-hmm. my skin felt like it was vibrating. And I didn't know what that was, but I wanted more of that, whatever that was. And it was maybe three or four weeks before 9-11. Mm-hmm. So the timing was interesting. And after 9-11, I felt like I had nothing. I couldn't draw. I couldn't make art. I just felt it just, you know, and I lived downtown, so I watched it live and it was, I mean, we were also traumatized. I mean, everyone who was there who saw it was traumatized and Mm. living in the smoke and the stench and all that. So, um, I just plunged into yoga increasingly. And of course, the minute I, I started doing that, then everything heated up at MoMA and they're like, Oh, you want to co-write this book? And it was, it was a whole bunch of stuff. So, but slowly it wasn't until like 2000, I'm not sure. Like May 2006, I started writing on yoga. I had no intention of being a yoga teacher, but I did a yoga teacher training, um, you know, beginning January 2002. And the first weekend I met Douglas Brooks and I was like, oh, I didn't know yoga could be this. I just Mm -hmm. felt good moving on my mat, but like it can be this. It can be all this like like insight and wisdom and philosophy. And and Mm. he was so brilliant. And I was just like, that's what I want. And I found myself six months later being like, I think I'm a yoga teacher, (laughs) you know? Mm. Anyway, it's a lot of story, but it's not your typical path for a yoga teacher. Like I, I, well, I don't think it's never a goal. It's not necessarily not typical for a yoga practitioner. I know, Mm. I know that definitely that just the movement was such a relief. So I can relate to the, the eyes open in Shavasana as that the relief was from being in movement and listening to someone else tell me what to do and go through these postures and just be out of my thing and moving through my body and then please get me out of here. Like get me changed and out of here. Don't let me talk to anyone. Don't make me lie here. Don't make me meditate. Don't make me do any of this stuff. In fact, I used to be a smoker and I would like do a yoga class and pop out for a smoke. 
So, you know, I, I think that that's not unusual to, to be in the physical, like to be turned on by the movement aspect of it without even considering the depth, without even considering where it comes from. Yeah. I mean, meditation was always a huge practice for me. Like I've been Mm. meditating since age 15. Mm. Um, how did you get to that? Well, it was my teachers like in high school. Really? Yeah. And it was kind of like, oh, okay, this is cool. I like this. Like it spoke to me, Mm. you know, I was an intense angsty teen and it really spoke to me like that intensity of like diving into yourself really Mm. spoke to me. And so that's always been a constant in my life. Um, yeah, I feel lucky to have that actually. So, but there was a disconnect there for that time when the Shavasana, were you still practicing meditation while you were doing when you, I think meditation had fallen by the wayside. And I think part of it also is when I left college, I stopped dancing. Hmm. So I had found this beautiful meditative quality Hmm. in dance in that way. And the creativity also, I mean, it all made sense to me, the art and the movement and the, it it was all one big parcel. <clears throat> but I was so stressed out in the art world that I felt like I just lost, I kind of lost that part of myself for a few years moving to New York. And I also wasn't earning any money when I moved here. And I was so broke that I couldn't join a gym and I couldn't take a yoga class. And, you know, I mean, there was, you know, Jiva Mukti just a few blocks from me over in the East Village and there, you know, all this other stuff. But like, I didn't, I didn't have that and I was in the art world also, which is, although, although I was a smoker, you know, we were going out drinking every night and we were this and we were, you know, I mean, it was crazy and wild. And I always think of the art world as the one place where it's still cool to be a smoker. Oh, you know, man. it still kind of is. I'm like, wow. It's like, really guys, you're all still like, yeah, you know? So, um, it's changing a little, but I, it still is a little bit like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So I do think it's interesting this uh, the 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 9/11 aspect of things, you know, this this moment of pause. Yeah. You know, for some people it's a you know, some sort of loss in their own life or some mm-hmm. sort of um undesirable change or something, but this kind of the wake up, the pause that happens when something big like that occurs yeah. in your sphere yeah. um you know it's almost like a seems like a gateway into another way of thought yeah well I think you have a choice at those moments you know it's like mm-hmm. experience happens like stuff happens in our lives stuff happens to you and you can't control it you know we, we're not in control of what happens and so we are in control to an extent of how we're going to receive our experience so X happened to me. Well, what am I going to do with it? What am I going to do about it? Where am I going to place that in my mind? Where am do I going to think place that, that in my heart? Do you think that the, the gym, yoga training, and meditation from your high school and junior high time kind of laid that foundation for you to come back to that? I mean, did you have other other spiritual training or other religious upbringing or other oh yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) oh yes that's a whole nother subject um interestingly um I was raised very catholic Hmm. and um so I mean I was a choir girl I went to church I went to ccd Hmm. (laughs) I did all that stuff 
And I actually loved it. Like most kids are like, you know, I was like, this stuff's cool. You know, I was like, give me the incense, give me the, you know, give me the ritual, give me the stance at meal, give me the, like, this stuff is cool. And I happened to be like in a community where the priests were actually Jesuits. So they were sort of radical thinkers. And so all the negative experiences that people, that a lot of people have with Catholicism, I didn't have those because they were just like, they were politically liberal. And so I was like, these guys are kind of cool. So I was lucky that I had a sort of positive um, spiritual upbringing. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, you know, in high school and I was, you know, studying all this philosophy and everything, it, I, it didn't make sense to me anymore. Like it didn't seem logical. And I began to listen more to the words and less just enjoying the rituals. And it didn't make sense to me and I didn't agree with it. And, um, and I kind of, it was hard, but I thought my way out of it. It was really hard. Um, and here I am years later hanging out in temples in South India and I'm like, yeah, the incense and yeah, the ritual. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of funny, but the difference is that it's not a religious practice. It's like, I'm not following someone else's rules. I'm respecting someone else's cultural rules, but I'm following, um, my own spirituality within that context. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely, my spiritual practices are deeply rooted in South Indian temple traditions. Mm. And that, that's a huge part of my life. And I, I have Douglas to thank for that, Douglas Brooks again, um, for bringing me to India for the first time and for having gone back with him so many times and now on my own and, um, and giving me that deep love and the context through which I could put this together and the mythology and the exquisite stories and the rituals and all this stuff that like these beautiful mirrors and maps and ways of examining myself and looking at the world. And, um, it's, it's so rich. It's so beautiful, but definitely like, I think, and a, I think a lot of people who are yogis, not all, but there are a lot like Douglas is like, I know he had a big Episcopalian like upbringing that his parents were like, why do you want to do this? And he's like, I don't know. I just want to do it. And they're like, okay, it's not our thing. You know? So I think there is this sense of, you know, a quest for spirit and the spiritual life that a lot of us have. And I was better able to step into this one because I had that one, but I wasn't necessarily looking for it, you know, and I don't, and I'm not looking for anyone ever to tell me what to do or how to behave. It's more, I can listen to all these things and, and look at all these things and say, who am I in relation to that? And what do I choose? And I'm definitely not into like the guru vibe and I'm not, it's not my thing. And I'm still, I've always been a, you're not the boss of me kind of person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so my spiritual life is my own and um, I'm not looking for anything that's not within me, but everything that I can learn from other people and from my experiences, um, I value deeply. It's like food, you know, so. How do you think you, you, you knew to do that? I mean, do you think you're just people are just wired differently to create their own pathway or you know you found this teacher you found yeah. this teacher um, who's not a guru but a teacher whose yeah. teachings led you in some direction I mean I found that for me that definitely there have been different points in my path where I felt the need to plug into something stronger, something more experienced, something more established. And then I've had, I personally have had more of a kind of a push and pull relationship with that where let me come, you know, back to the nest and sit here for a while. And then now I want to go and 
see what it's like just for me on my own. <laughs> Back and yeah. forth like that. But um, is, do you feel like that's a, a individual wiring of people? or I mean, in, as you teach people, do you find that the people that are drawn to you as a teacher come in with that same point of view? or? Yeah. Interesting. That's such an interesting question. <laughs> Both of those, like mm-hmm. the spiritual wiring part, but also the um, who's drawn to me. I mean, I definitely know that I tend to draw a lot of creative thinkers, which just makes sense. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm still, I still draw, I'm still an artist and I still, you know, draw with words and I, you know, all these things. So I think it makes sense that the people come to my classes tend to be creative thinkers and, and a lot of artists, I've had a lot of different, different kinds of artists, people in the arts, but also a lot of people who might have more traditional jobs, but who are very creative in their way of thinking and their way of looking at the world. So I definitely think there's something to be said for being wired. I mean, I definitely was like born like, hi, I'm an artist. This is the deal. Like no doubt in my mind whatsoever. So I think that I, I was always probably a very sort of, indiv- I know as individualistic, like my parents, <laughs> my, I've, and I have wonderful parents and that has something to do with it too. I'm a wonderful family, sister, everything who, um, you know, I was always encouraged to speak my mind and, um, be myself. And I was always encouraged to be an artist and to be a writer. And like, they always were like, Oh, it's great. Whatever you do, which is not the norm for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I think part of it was the way I was raised. And, and then part of it is just like, you know, I'm my own. Yeah. I think I was wired like that. Mm. It's interesting. I've always, I think there are people definitely who are spiritual seekers and some do it to heal something within themselves and others do it to just because it's maybe the artistry of it, you know, like the artistry is beautiful. Like I always love the rituals. Oh, I'm lighting candles and there's incense and there's this and their robes, you know, and there, there's all this beautiful artwork. And now here I am kind of doing a different version of that, you know? Um, so I think that that the artistry of it has something to do with the beauty of ritual. Like I danced, I was a visual artist, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing this incredible beauty and thinking, you know, when, when this stuff is good, it's really good when it's bad and goes down a bad road, that's unfortunate. But, um, yeah, I think there's something to that. Yeah. Yeah, You're, I read, I was reading your, your, I don't know if you call it your artist statement, but on your website, my work explores the idea of body and mind as landscape. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) And I'm interested in softening these boundaries until they become permeable, creating a fluid conversation between my body, mind, and environment. What I see around me correlates to what I find within. I love this last line. My work transforms my daily sensory experience into personal meaning. Thank you. I haven't read that in a long time. <laughs> I was like, when did I write that? I've been up there for a couple of years. But I, I'm, I, I am curious about this. Your, you, how your relationship to your yourself as a, as a visual artist, as an artist only, has has transformed or evolved as you've stepped into this role of spiritual teacher. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's, I have to say for a while, there was a real struggle inside of me. I had a real identity crisis in my adult life about it because I had never doubted who I was. I was always like the artist and, and the writer too. 
And I had always felt extremely confident in my writing, probably even more so than in my artwork. I mean, I always loved art making, but there's something actually easier in a way about writing for me, like writing, and I shouldn't like knock on wood, you know, don't, don't curse myself, but writing has always been really easy for me, to be honest. Like I never had the fear of the blank page. I never had that sense of what do I write about ever. And I, I know I'm lucky, and I, and I hope that by saying that, I'm not putting some sort of hex on myself. But um, I feel, and I, and I teach all these people to write. You know, I teach a lot of online courses. And I teach people to write, and that's because I know, like, I can get them there, you know? And I, can, I know I can, like, break down those boundaries. And, um, you know, artistry is at the heart of everything I do and everything I love. And... That's why India for me is so incredible. I mean, from the women like me making columns on the ground as like blessings in front of their doorstep every day to like just the beauty of like and the graciousness of how people dress there and um, and the temples and like there's so much attention to artistry. Artistry is woven into everyday life. But when I first realized I start when I started teaching yoga pretty seriously. And I, I kind of dragged my feet for a while. Now I was writing this book on my Tisavakasa. And so when I really started teaching, I guess more, I started in 2002, but I didn't really start teaching seriously to about 2005 probably. And um, I literally had a friend in the art world say to me, a good friend, say, so, so what's the deal now? You're, you know, you're not going to make art anymore. You're just going to teach yoga. Like I had to choose somehow. And I got so hung up about it that I embedded my yoga website like with a hidden link inside my art website because all the artists were like, like, wait a minute, what with this weird yoga thing? What are you doing? It wasn't cool in the art world yet. Now it's like, now no one cares. Now all the, now all my art friends are like, Oh, should I do yoga? <laughs> you know? yeah. But at the time it wasn't cool. And, um, but all the yoga people were like, yeah, come as you are, do whatever, be whoever you are. And they actually thought it was really neat that I was in the art world. You know, I was always bringing my yoga friends into MoMA before hours, you know, so they could get a glimpse of things. And, um, so I was like, well, the yogis are fine finding their way through the art thing, but the art people are not. So it's like a hidden link. Isn't that crazy? And I had like different business cards. It was really nuts. I was like a divided life mm -hmm. and I really had a hang up about it and really didn't know what to do. And, and finally I just had to sort of bite the bullet. And when I realized how am I spending my time, I'm spending most of my time doing this yoga stuff. And then with the writing, it was like, wow, you know, I couldn't stop it. Like the one, the minute I decided to do it, it started pouring out of me. And I couldn't stop. And then all of a sudden, all these publications started reaching out to me. And um, and I think part of it was that I didn't put any pressure on it. I was just doing it to do it. I wasn't getting paid for it. I wouldn't, you know, that's a whole other story. But I mean, I wasn't getting paid for it. And I was just doing it because it was fun. So it wasn't like, this is my profession. I have to do it. Right, um, that joy that you were talking about yeah. that had fallen yeah. out of the, the artwork. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then I worried, you know, after writing this book that I would lose my joy in writing. And so after I finished writing the book and all the editing was, which is so torturous, the back and forth, um, you know, I didn't really do much writing at all for like three months after I, after the book was finalized and I was, and I was like, oh my God, maybe it's finally happened. I've lost my joy in writing. Oh no, oh no, oh no. And I just realized, as I said to, I taught a big writing and yoga workshop yesterday, um, outside the city. And I was saying to them, you know, like it's a muscle, writing's a muscle. 
just like in yoga, if you don't do chaturanga for a while, you're gonna be like, whoa, what happened, you know? And writing is a muscle too, and if you don't do it for a while, if you draw, stop drawing for a while, at painting, whatever, you know, it gets rusty, it, gets, it, it atrophies a little bit. But you can kick it back into gear, and there it is again. So I started writing these really regular, every two weeks um, column, Yoga 365 columns for Yoga Anonymous um, in August. And, and the first one I did, I was like, oh, here I am writing again, Ugh, it took me forever. And then the second one was easier, and then the third one was easier, and then I started knocking them out, you know, and everyone wants me to write something for them right now to promote the book. So um, I've and noticed just to, all of a sudden, For the people that are just is, listening, yeah. just to remind this, the, the title of the book. Oh, Yoga 365. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yoga 365, which is a daily reader yes. for all levels yoga practitioners. Correct? It really is. Yeah. I, and um, Chronicle's notion, my publisher's notion, it was their concept and they wanted it to be for beginners. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to like roll it back a little bit. But what had I been doing at MoMA for years? I had been explaining Jackson Pollock to people who had never been in a museum before. You know, so mm-hmm. I'm like, that's my thing. That's a, apparently that's my destiny to mm-hmm. like open these doors for people. And, um, and I'm happy to, to do that, whether mm-hmm. it's in yoga or in art. And um, so I tried to make it really big. It, w- it was a good exercise for me to have to explain things in that simple a way and not assume that anyone knew one term that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. But what happened as we planned it out is that I realized there was, it was going to be a great resource for teachers too, because we, it's not in a specific order, but we organized it, my editor and I, so that every month had three asanas, two myths. That was, I was like, there's gotta be myth in here. I love myths. So two Hindu myths, um, a mantra, a mudra, a meditation, and a breath something, whether it's a practice or meditation in the breath, and then something about some part of the body, whether it's bones or you know, five or whatever it is. And then the rest are different contemplations on different aspects of yoga. And what a different, great resource. Yeah, so it actually, all these teachers are buying it, and it was, it's entry level enough for them to read it to their students, but it also has a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. So it's, mm. yeah, stuff. <laughs> well, I interrupted your flow just to, to go on that, but, oh, but it was part of one of the questions I, I did want to talk to you about. It's kind of where we were headed in this what you're talking about is practice, you know, practice, practice writing, practice yoga, practice drawing, practice meditation. And this, um, I'm, I'm curious about your different relationship. If there's a different relationship or a different energy or a different, um, mode that you go into these different things in as practice. So you have an asana practice, you have a meditation practice, you have a writing practice, you have a drawing practice, you have a teaching practice. You know, is there is practice one thing or mm. is it different to practice yoga than it is to practice writing or how, how do you how do you mm. I think to me, yeah. for me Practice is a way of being, and it's a way of, of thinking. It's a, it's a way of being more than anything else. So if you're, you know, practice, practice, practice. I love, you know, practice and all will come. You know, I love, everyone loves that, um, the Tabby Joyce quote. Mm-hmm. But practice for me is like you're all, it's less, 
less goal oriented. And I don't think it's bad to have goals. I mean, obviously I have goals. It's like, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to do this. I can do that. But I think that when your goal is living as opposed to like get check off X, check off Y, mm -hmm. check off Z, then you're in this mode of practice all the time and you're in more of a sense of flow. Mm -hmm. It's less linear. And, and it's funny because I'm actually very organized and I'm very, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a woman who loves a bullet point, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I love all this stuff. But at the same time, I have to be watchful of that in myself because I can get very like, this is what we're doing. So I think that um, being in that flow of practice makes things a little bit less linear and a little bit more, to use the word again, flowing. It makes things circulate. It makes things move around. And I have to say, while you were asking this question, phrasing this question, which is such a good one, I was thinking about time, you know, in the process of practice mm -hmm. and how when it's really good, you lose yourself. I know when I'm drawing, when I'm really engaged in drawing and I haven't been able to draw as much the past couple of years as I usually do, but it's the same thing as when I write. At a certain point, I'll stop and look up and I'll, I'll have absolutely no idea whether it's been 20 minutes or three hours, like absolutely mm -hmm. no idea. Mm -hmm. And I think most people who do those things creatively have that experience. I think that's a really typical experience. And that can be, and meditating, I have to say, does that as well. Like when I'm meditating, like I don't, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, oh, well, that was so long. And it's been like 10 minutes. And other times it's an hour. And I'm like, how did that happen? I don't mm -hmm. even know how that happened. So it depends on your mindset at the moment, your, you know, the time of day, the what's happened in your life, what you have to do. I have to say the place where, interestingly, I lose myself least is asana. And because I'm more conscious of like making decisions about moving my foot forward and my alignment and my this and my that, I don't lose myself in it in the same way. Mm. I might lose a little bit of track of time when I'm practicing, but it's nothing like that complete oblivion mm. of when I, that, there are times when I write that I, I really, and when I draw, I just have, I'm not even exaggerating whether it's 20 minutes or three hours, I don't even know. And sometimes I'll know because it's dark out. And it, I'll be like confused because I'm like, well, it's two in the afternoon. I'm like, oh, no, it's seven. Mm. And it's it's bizarre. It's a bizarre world. For that reason, I actually tend to set. I love my iPhone. I set, my, <laughs> I set the timer all the time because mm. otherwise I, I can't control my time. I like that so. idea that, that pra practice is a way of being in time. Yeah. And, and just setting out. Setting out. Now it's time to practice writing. Yeah. And setting out. Yeah. Now it's time to practice meditation and setting out. You know, m that's one of the main questions that, or or questions or comments that come through when I talk or work with people about meditating is, well, I've been doing five minutes, or, well, I know I should be doing twenty minutes, or, gosh, you know, I've only been doing half an hour for the last week, and. Um, and you know, many of my teachers have reminded me that the, the yes, time and effort is really important to building a practice. Yeah. But the quality of that, the presence of being in that practice, is you know something that in urban life we often just can't even fathom yeah. that I'm going to have this unlimited 
unbounded amount of, of time where I could just get through the practice. Right. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, yeah, it's something to, to offer yourself. Definitely just being here in, I mean, you spend a lot of time here in France, but the, the way that time operates here is very different than oh, it yeah. does in New York. Love it there. <laughs> it's so, yeah, it's really, when so I, when different. my Parisian friends are like, oh, la vie, oh, c'est fou. <laughs> it's yeah. like, they're like, oh, it's so crazy here. I'm like, oh, not compared to where I live. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Not, not by any means. So much more humane. I love Paris. So. I know that you've been talking about this throughout, about how the, that you're a lot of your, your spiritual life centers around these rituals and the temples and all these kinds of things. So I know that I was in a yoga class in, I don't know, 2008, maybe seven. And someone was talking about Hanuman and it really was like the breaking point for me. That was my breaking point. This woman was talking about Hanuman and I was like, who in the heck is Hanuman and who are you to be telling me about this Hanuman guy? And why do I even need to know that? I had this total moment where I, w I was like done. And that's when I went on my quest looking for a teacher because I oh. wanted to, to have some, I knew that there was more to that. Yeah. Instead, I was hearing about this monkey god, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, do I really need to be hearing about this monkey god? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Can yeah. we just get deeper into this pose? Yeah. And um, and so, and now, you know, now I have a relationship with, with you know, with many of these gods and goddesses and relate to them personally and, you know, get draw from that now that I have the knowledge behind it and the experience of it. Yeah. So that's a long way of getting to my question, which is <laughs> how, how, how do you, um, you know, invite people into this idea of a, of another culture of Hindu gods and goddesses and, and invite them in if they're feeling a bit skeptical or maybe even, you know, just, uncertain about how to take that in? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important question. And the first thing I'm going to say before I answer it is that I think there are different teachers for different people and people have different needs. And I mean, I, I know people who are, you know, who will do yoga who never want to hear about that. They're never going to want to hear about that stuff. And I'm not their, I'm not their teacher. And that's fine. You know, I don't have to be everybody's teacher. Mm -hmm. There are people who don't use the Sanskrit names for the poses. That's fine. You know, that's going to, there are a million doors to come in for yoga. I really do feel that way. And so when people get like angry about like this form of yoga or that form of yoga, or there's this new big studio in New York that's like hip hop yoga. I said, and they're like, oh, does that make you angry? And I'm like, no, that doesn't make me angry. I'm like, you know what? Actually, it kind of sounds like fun. You're like, go do like yoga to hip hop. Like, I don't know how it works, but I'm like, that sounds like a fun day out. You know, I could go do a class there. It's not what I would ever be interested in teaching, but you know what? It serves some purpose so be it. Yoga's morphed into so many different forms. So that, that's the, um, that's the, yoga isn't this one pure thing. And you know what I mean? Yoga has been affected by everything. Mm. So culturally, so that's fine. I don't care what people do. Um, 
but I do care passionately, you know, about these practices. And another practice that I do every day that I didn't mention is my mantra practice. And mantra is huge for me. I do a big, that's, I can't do mantra all the time, like putting myself to sleep, waking up in the morning, everything. So I'm inwardly or outwardly. So I tell a lot of um, Hindu myth and chant in my classes, and I'm very careful to be culturally sensitive because it's not my heritage. Hmm. And I often say why to Indian friends of mine who are like, how'd you get so interested in this? I'm like, you know what? I don't really know. Hmm. It just, it showed up in my life and, and I, and it just, it found its place inside of me. And, um, I'm very careful not to be a culture vulture about it. You know, I'm very respectful and, and honoring of, um, of the fact that I even have it in my life. I'm grateful. So when students come to my class and I definitely, I'll get people, you know, people drop in and be like, what is this? And I can see them. I, if there's anyone in my class who I've never seen before, and I'm telling a myth or a story or chanting a mantra, the first thing I tell them is something, I said something like this earlier, like a half hour ago, I think, um, which is that the, the myths and the deities are maps and they're mirrors. And they really are. What can I learn about myself through looking into this thing? Like, so when you look at Hanuman, picture of Hanuman, picture of Shiva, picture of Lakshmi, whoever it is, what is this reflecting back to me about my life and who I am? So when you learn the iconography, then it gets cool because you're looking at it and you're like, oh, I get it. This is, this is a collection of symbols and it's metaphor. And that, that means it has something to do with everyone because it's something mm. to do with life. Mm. And then it's a map. I can use this as a map of my consciousness. Mm. I, can, I can focus on it and examine it and wander around and, and, and find something, find some truth about myself or some reflection um, back to me about myself. So I, I, tell, my, I tell students, think of the deity as a named aspect of you. Hmm. So if we're talking about Hanuman, for example, since you brought him up, Hanuman is about connection. You know, where is there a lack of connection in your life? Is is there a separation between your body and your Hmm. mind or your body and your heart? Well, that's a Hanuman thing. Like Hmm. you've got to call the Hanuman. Hanuman is the ultimate yogi. Hmm. Yoga, verbal root, Sanskrit root is yuj, which means to yoke. Yoga, so do the yoga. And he's the ultimate yogi because he reconnects Sita and Ram in the Ramayana. And he, he creates like this, mm. this constant sense of unity and reconnecting. That's his thing. That's what he does. He's the mm. Upadev. He's the one who's right there about to reconnect you. So, you know, then it's like, oh, okay, I get it. It's like, so forget about the monkey dude. You know, like, what does that mean to find connection? Where do you need connection in your life? Where would you, where do you long for deeper connection? You know, and that's, let's call that Hanuman for today. Mm. And when you chant the mantra, you're chanting to that energy or that power hmm. in the universe, in you. So it does take some study. I mean, that's the thing I think that, and and you, I can hear just in your talking about it, that it's, you know, it's such, so from a, a novelist's point of view, you know, drawing <laughs> in all of these characters and looking at them as reflections and, um, you know, that's wonderful. But it does take a bit of educating yourself you know, yeah. to, to have some of that depth and, um, and, but, and, and nice to go to someone that has done, done the work. And like you said, it's called, uh, is culturally sensitive to it, um, in a way. And I know how little I know too, you know, I'm very aware, like I know so much that I, that I know I know nothing. <laughs> it's like nothing compared to my teacher Douglas, you know, yeah. nothing compared to like, 
it's just anyway. And so, and I feel lucky. I feel lucky that I, that there's so much more for me out there. What do you feel is something that you could offer um, as a piece of advice for specifically women and girls on the path? Mm. Like what do you see coming up or what, what do you feel in your heart or what from your um, wisdom? A couple of things that immediately come to mind. So I'm going to say two things. Um, the most important being that you have to create a temple within yourself. And so that wherever you go, that is within you. So no matter what happens on the outside, and this is why we practice, this is why we practice. We practice for joy, we practice for creativity, but we practice to create that temple within ourselves or to create a temple out of ourselves. So that no matter what is raging in the world around us, we can close our eyes and we can go inside, even if it's just for a moment, even if it's on the metro or the subway, no matter where we are, if someone's doing something, you know, on pleasant around us, whatever, and we can go inside and find that deep center, like you can find the altar, you can find the puja, you can find um, the source, you know, the bot, you know, whether, however you want to envision that within yourself and that you always have that. So no matter where you are in the world, you carry your own temple with you. And I think that's really important for women. And a lot of the issues have been coming up in politically lately with, um, you know, the way women are spoken to and the way what women put up with um, in the world and, and the way we're treated and harassment and stuff like this. Like you create a temple within yourself that's so powerful that you can let that stuff slide off as much as, as possible. And another, the second thing I wanted to say was about the idea of Shakti. So Shakti in yoga is the female principle to Shiva. So Shiva is like the great stillness mm -hmm. and Shakti is movement and motion. And Shakti also, as we know, means energy and means, um, and means power. So what practices do you need to do as a woman in your life, in this world, to maintain your Shakti? And the thing to remember, Shakti is always moving and shifting. So sometimes, you know, my writing practice is like so rich and so satisfying and maybe purging and it helps me to release things and it helps me to get my thought and my heart in, in order, um, my thoughts and my heart in order. Um, and sometimes it's going to be drawing in that beautiful process of moving my hand on a page and making lines and, and making this world. And other times I need to sit and do mantra. And other times I need to do asana practice. And there are many ways. And I, for lots of people, it may be cooking, you know, and that a lot, someone else is going to be knitting. Someone else is going to be going for a run. So what are your practices that keep your shakti moving and flowing so that you're not stuck? And what are those practices that, that make, that remind you that you are your own temple mm. and you need to bow down to yourself before you can bow down to anyone else? Mm. Great. Great. Keep the Shakti flowing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Susanna. I'm so glad we could coordinate a time to connect. Yeah. And thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. And thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. And you gave me time and space to talk about things I feel very passionately about. So thank you.